According to recent phylogenic studies of the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, which basically means looking at the genomic diversification and evolution of the disease we typically call COVID-19, it's currently believed that it descended from a type of coronavirus that is prevalent in wild bats, either having transmitted directly from a bat to a human and then changing to be a better fit with its new host or having first spread to an intermediary host, then changing a bit within that new host, which then primed it to make the hop to humans. Whether one of those decently well-backed Genesis stories turns out to be true, or if some new bit of evidence emerges that points us in a new direction, it's believed that patient zero, the initial known human case of the COVID-19 coronavirus, began to show symptoms on December 1st of 2019 in Wuhan, China. A few weeks later, the first admissions of COVID-19-bearing patients at hospitals were documented, also in Wuhan. Recent data from the National Institute of Health in Italy indicates that around this same time, sewage samples from wastewater treatment plants in Milan and Turin showed the presence of COVID-19. So there's a good chance that the coronavirus was being spread internationally well before most people realized it, and even before the alarm had been sounded in China, before those first documented hospital cases. By the end of December, the Wuhan Municipal Health Commission had sent out a warning message to other Chinese medical entities, providing an outline of the maybe outbreak they were seeing, which at that point consisted of less than a dozen patients showing similar symptoms and markers, indicating they were dealing with a SARS, or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, type virus, which led some to believe this was a recurrence of a SARS coronavirus they had seen previously, back in the early 2000s. They also indicated that medical professionals were not to spread information about the plans and treatments being proposed and utilized without permission from authorized personnel. So basically, don't talk to the press and don't tell anyone about any of this unless your superiors tell you it's okay to do so. On December 31st, the commission announced to the public that they were seeing a pneumonia outbreak and that anyone who was experiencing pneumonia symptoms or persistent fever should visit the hospital. It was also advised that the public wear face masks and avoid crowded areas. There were 27 known cases at this point in all, all in Wuhan, seven of them serious and two of the patients were in recovery. For context, a short Reuters piece on this seemingly small but still somewhat alarming outbreak on the 31st was headlined, Chinese officials investigate cause of pneumonia outbreak in Wuhan. The piece noted that rumors were circulating that it might be another SARS-related event before saying, quote, in 2003, Chinese officials covered up a SARS outbreak for weeks before a growing death toll and rumors forced the government to reveal the epidemic, apologize, and vow full candor in future outbreaks, end quote. This sentence would prove to be unfortunately and somewhat ironically prescient about what happened next. By the first day of 2020, about 266 people who would later be confirmed as infected with COVID-19 were admitted to Chinese hospitals. 
a popular seafood market, was closed that day as well, ostensibly for cleaning and disinfection, implying that there was some concern that this new SARS-related disease might have been connected to the live animals sold and slaughtered in such markets. The World Health Organization, or WHO, made their first official announcement about the disease on January 2nd, indicating that they were watching events unfold and giving some details about what local entities were doing to deal with the situation. A Wuhan-based ophthalmologist was punished for spreading quote-unquote rumors about what he was seeing in his patients who were infected with this virus, and the United States was formally notified about the outbreak on January 3rd though information about the spread was censored on Chinese social media. In subsequent weeks, it was announced that scientists looking into the disease had discovered a novel coronavirus. Medical entities from other mostly Asian countries began to notice folks in their own hospitals showing signs of having this new coronavirus. And the whistleblower ophthalmologist from Wuhan caught COVID and died, which led to an unusual amount of social unrest on the Chinese internet for a while. The genome for this new coronavirus was posted to a genetic sequence database mid-January, and the first confirmed case of COVID outside of China was documented in Bangkok in a Chinese woman visiting from Wuhan. At this point, health officials from Wuhan were telling the public that there was no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission, and that maybe it was spread by animals or food or something along those lines. On January 18th, the Wuhan city government held a massive Chinese New Year celebration, welcoming 40,000 families to dine together, despite the number of confirmed cases having risen to 312 at that point. Human-to-human transmission was confirmed on January 20th. The United States and South Korea both confirmed their first cases that same day. Several more superspreader events took place in Singapore and in non-Wuhan parts of China. On January 23rd, all public transportation in Wuhan was suspended, and all outbound trains and flights were halted as well. The WHO announced that this was not yet an official public health emergency of international concern, but it was an emergency in China. By the end of January, several borders with China had been closed, and quite a few airlines and countries halted their Chinese travel routes. There were over 6,000 confirmed cases in China alone at this point, and most countries around the world had reported at least one confirmed infection. By the 5th of February, China was up to over 10,000 confirmed cases, and the numbers were ticking up rapidly elsewhere as well. A few prominent superspreader events captured headlines, like the spread aboard the Diamond Princess cruise ship, which resulted in over 700 infections, 14 of which have since died as a result. The spread of the disease by aerosol, in moisture emitted by talking, laughing, sneezing, coughing, was confirmed on February 8th, and China's mainland infection count was up to over 40,000 people, the majority of which were in Hubei, the province where Wuhan is located. The death toll was up to 811 people. On February 11th, the disease, which had been mostly referred to as the novel coronavirus, or just coronavirus until that point, was named COVID-19 by the World Health Organization. The virus itself, which gives people the disease, was named SARS-CoV-2. The known global death toll for COVID-19 passed 1,000 people that same day. 
The following week, China's stock market tumbled, new cases were confirmed every day around the world, and organizations like the WHO and national governments began to requisition funds for pandemic response measures. The following week, global stock markets dropped dramatically as the disease continued to spread pretty much everywhere. A few countries, like Iran, put bans or limitations on public gatherings, alongside limits or bans on travelers coming from countries with high infection rates. By the end of the month, over 84,000 cases and nearly 3,000 deaths were confirmed worldwide, though the majority of both cases and deaths were still in China. By the end of the first week of March, the number of confirmed cases worldwide had breached 100,000. Major events like the annual South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas were canceled, and the U.S. states of Florida and New York had declared states of emergency. Italy was beginning to experience a major outbreak by mid-March, and several countries, including the U.K., were advising against inessential travel to Italy. On March 9th, Italy declared a nationwide lockdown. The Czech Republic closed their schools on March 10th, Greece closed schools and universities for two weeks that same day, and the United Nations announced that about 20% of students were not in school worldwide because of the pandemic. On March 11th, the WHO formally declared the COVID-19 outbreak a pandemic, and the next day, Wuhan, which until this point had typically recorded more infections and deaths than any place else, recorded only five new cases. By mid-March, the majority of U.S. states had closed or partially closed schools, the Dow Jones Industrial Average recorded its worst drop in history, and Switzerland banned all events and closed all shops in the country. In the latter half of March, the EU and Russia closed their borders to non-essential travel and non-resident, non-diplomat travel, respectively. Italy surpassed China as the country with the most COVID-19-related deaths, and India banned all incoming international flights. China reported no new local COVID-19 infections and lifted their lockdown in Hubei province. Greek entered a full-on lockdown. Spain extended their state of emergency. Nigeria closed their land borders to non-residents and non-citizens. Japan announced that they'd be postponing the Olympics, which was scheduled to be held in Tokyo in 2020, and that is the first postponement of the Olympics since World War II. And the WHO warned of a, quote, significant shortage, end quote, of medical supplies globally. During that same period, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson tested positive for COVID-19. The US surpassed 140,000 COVID cases, which was more than any other country in the world at that point. And by the end of March, nearly one-third of the world's population was under COVID-19 lockdowns or restrictions. In early April, Wimbledon was canceled for the first time since World War II, as was the Open Golf Championship. A UN climate conference set to take place in November was preemptively canceled, and unemployment numbers in Austria reached a new post-World War II record high. Thailand imposed a nationwide curfew. 6.6 million U.S. citizens filed for unemployment, bringing the nationwide total to over 10 million. The White House encouraged the wearing of masks, though President Trump continued to decry their use. And global COVID-19 deaths exceeded 50,000, while the number of confirmed cases exceeded 1 million. The U.S. bypassed Italy in having the most confirmed COVID-related deaths in the world on April 11th, the day before Wuhan wet markets opened back up for business, the lockdown in Wuhan having been lifted a few days previous. 
By mid-April, Japan had declared a nationwide state of emergency. 22 million Americans had filed for unemployment since the U.S. state of emergency was declared four weeks earlier, and the Nigerian president's chief of staff died of COVID-19. Also in April, immigration to the United States was suspended via presidential executive order. China reported its first economic contraction in a decade, and the first trials for a COVID-19 vaccine were approved in Germany. The U.S. government withheld funding to the WHO, claiming pro-China bias as the rationale, and China pledged an additional $30 million in funding for the organization shortly thereafter. Italy and Spain announced plans to ease lockdown restrictions beginning in May. The WHO announced that there was still no evidence that folks who catch and recover from COVID-19 have immunity, and the U.S. recorded over a million confirmed cases. In early May, global cases had climbed to 3.5 million. Signs of mysterious COVID-linked side effects began to appear in people of all ages, with some of the most alarming of these side effects appearing in young children, and France began to loosen their lockdown restrictions. By the end of May, the U.S. had over 100,000 COVID-19-linked deaths, and reports indicated that Latin America was accounting for 40% of all COVID-19 deaths globally. In June, Italy reopened for tourism. France reopened its common public spaces. The Philippines eased their lockdown measures. And Jordan reopened mosques for religious services. New York City began to reopen. New Zealand lifted all pandemic restrictions, declaring the country completely COVID-free. And India lifted their restrictions, though under a haze of concern that they were moving too fast and were risking stoking a surge of infections by doing so. China published a paper claiming that it did not try to conceal the virus from its people or the world, and Brazil's government began to remove COVID data from their official website, but later put it back up after their Supreme Court intervened. Global COVID-linked deaths surpassed 500,000, and Kazakhstan locked back down after a surge followed its removal of some lockdown restrictions. July began with a flood of new cases in Brazil, 12,000 confirmed in a single day, and the United States state of Florida confirmed 10,000 new cases. India announced that they'd be reopening, despite recently surpassing 600,000 confirmed cases and nearly 18,000 deaths. The U.S. reported over 55,000 new cases, setting a new global record. Scientists from over 30 countries called upon the WHO to bring attention to evidence that COVID is airborne and thus spreading via mechanisms beyond shaking hands and other types of physical contact, and the WHO acknowledged this possibility. Around that same time, President Trump notified the U.S. Congress and the United Nations that the U.S. would be withdrawing from the WHO. The Spanish government found via a study involving 61,000 participants that COVID-19 antibodies fade over time, which makes herd immunity strategies unlikely to work. Also in July, Iran reported 12,000 deaths in a day, a new record for the country, and Indonesia reported their highest single-day increase in cases linked to a super-spreader event at a military facility. The U.S. and Brazil alone made up half the new daily cases worldwide by mid-July, and the number of global confirmed infections increased by one million in just five days. Later in the month, the UK accused Russia of hacking their vaccine research, and the United States accused China of hacking their vaccine research. 
In August, Russia approved a vaccine they developed in-country called Sputnik V. Scientists worldwide expressed concern about the vaccine, saying there's no evidence it's effective or safe, that the numbers don't add up, and that many of those using it and claiming to use it have reported being coerced into doing so by the government. Mid-August, the WHO reported that the pandemic is costing the global economy more than $375 billion per month. India reported about 67,000 new cases in a single day, a new record for the country. Alongside a slew of other infection number records and near records for Greece, Colombia, Brazil, Germany, Spain, France, and South Korea. Infection numbers were dropping in about half of U.S. states, but remained steady or were growing in the rest of the states. September opened with a resumption of international flights from Beijing. COVID levels got back up to around the same place they were in March throughout Europe, which was a moment of record highs for many European Union countries. And Australia's infection epicenter, Melbourne, extended its hard lockdown until the end of the month. India bypassed Brazil as the second-worst-hit country after the United States. The UK recorded a new surge in cases, the first major surge since May. And the United States passed 7 million confirmed infections, while global deaths from COVID passed 1 million. By the end of September, global confirmed deaths were up to about 1.16 million people, with about 43.6 million people confirmed infected, and around 29.3 million having recovered from the disease. What I'd like to talk about today is where we are now with this pandemic as we head into the final months of 2020 and what we might expect through the end of the year and into 2021. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. 2020 has been a substantial, historic, bizarre, uncertain, at times quite horrifying and tragic year. The data points I listed in the intro were just an incredibly small selection of what occurred and do not anywhere near capture what it's been like to live through all this much less to be bombarded with information about new worries and threats every single day via the news and our many sources of regurgitated pseudo-news. Fortunately, we've learned a lot about COVID-19 over the course of the past 10 months, but unfortunately, there are still quite a few question marks in even our basic understanding of this disease and the coronavirus that causes it, alongside all the unknowns related to afflicted aspects of society, governance, and everyday life, like our economies, our politics, our individual livelihoods, and even things like relationships, from handshaking to dating. To follow up on that fairly brutal recitation of sad facts in the intro, I'd like to share a selection of headlines from several different publications which, like the intro, gives an incomplete but still useful overview of what's happening right now with the pandemic an overview that is hopefully illustrative of how things have progressed and are continuing to progress. From the BBC, there's a piece entitled COVID, Melbourne's Hard-Won Success After a Marathon Lockdown, which details the Australian city's efforts to tackle a very deadly wave of infections and how those efforts paid off 
allowing residents to finally emerge from lockdown into something approximating normal life after enduring some of the most substantial lockdown measures in any city around the world. From Reuters, there's an article entitled Dying Inside, The Hidden Crisis in America's Jails, which is part three of a larger investigation by this publication about America's prison population and policies, and how some of these holding facilities have been releasing inmates early in an effort to avoid a pandemic surge, and in doing so, they may have sparked a renewed effort to deal with the perverse incentives and inequities that exist within law enforcement, but also the prison and jail systems in the United States. There's a piece from the Financial Times entitled, Boeing Plans Deeper Job Cuts as Crises Stifle Aircraft Demand, which addresses the ongoing calamity within the airline industry worldwide, but also within the industries that supply the airline service providers. Companies like Boeing, a maker of aircraft, among many other things, which has announced it will cut 19,000 jobs by the end of 2020, mostly in their commercial planes division, alongside another 7,000 positions that will be cut through voluntary and involuntary means, firings and asking people to retire early. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal entitled, France Emerges as COVID-19 Epicenter as Cases Surge Across Europe which details a new wave of infections that's been unfurling in the European Union, with countries like France suffering the brunt of those infections, perhaps in part because of local efforts to remove restrictions, even as infection numbers have increased. Paired with that piece, we have one from DW entitled Germany to Impose One-Month Partial Lockdown, which outlines the new, lighter-weight lockdown measures that will go into effect in Germany beginning November 2nd, due to concerns over the aforementioned pulse of new infections in Europe more broadly, but also in Germany in particular. Quartz has a piece entitled Cloth Face Masks Will Soon Have Certification Labels, which discusses some of the issues we've had with face masks and other face mask-like accessories through the lens of a new standard that we should have sometime relatively soon, possibly before the end of 2020, which will prescribe what claims makers of these and similar products can legally make, and hopefully who buys which products for which purposes moving forward which should lead to more clarity as to which masks will provide which benefits, especially in terms of COVID-related benefits. In Ars Technica, there's a piece entitled Trump's Website Defaced with Claim That Trump Admin Created Coronavirus. And just to make this very clear up front, there is zero evidence for anything like that. And this claim was published as part of a scam to get people to send the hacker cryptocurrency in exchange for supposed evidence about Trump that almost certainly doesn't exist. This is part of a larger surge in hacks, often of schools and hospitals, but also of political and other ideological sites, either holding those online assets hostage in exchange for payouts from the owners, or as a means of scamming anyone who visits the site, or in some cases the social media profiles of prominent public figures. As of the day I'm recording this, one of the big stories is that elements of the U.S. intelligence community have been warning hospitals that they have very good reason to believe that in the near future, there could be a mass hack of U.S. hospitals, which could be devastating 
because of the new surge in infections that's happening at the moment here in the States. This collection of hacks is apparently coming from a Russian government-affiliated group, and this intelligence is apparently based on the fact that this group has been doing the groundwork, the initial hacking required, to then take over the online assets of these hospitals. And finally, there's a piece in the New York Times entitled The Pandemic's Real Toll, 300,000 Deaths, and it's not just from coronavirus. This piece addresses an alarming secondary data point that implies not only have over 200,000 people in the United States died of COVID-19 and complications directly related to their infection with COVID-19, but we're also about 100,000 deaths over our usual rate, which suggests there's a good chance more people are dying from secondary consequences of the pandemic, like economic and social unrest-related issues, and not just the pandemic itself. Together, These articles paint a broad, but hopefully somewhat legible picture of what's happening in the world right now. In general, some places are doing well, celebrating hard-won victories and recovering economically, socially, and medically from the initial surges of the pandemic in their region. This seems to be especially true in China right now, but countries like New Zealand have also done quite well, using somewhat different tactics and governmental models to do so from China, but still on a significant recovery path, with locals able to enjoy many of the benefits of normal everyday life that we still are simply not seeing in other parts of the world. In those other parts of the world that are not on that recovery path and have not recovered, we continue to suffer under fairly consistent ongoing waves of pandemic-related infections. Here in the U.S., we are seeing a clear third-wave-style bump in infection numbers as of the day I'm recording this, but we've never actually come all the way down to decent overall infection levels here either. We've had kind of steady numbers all the way throughout, and our good months have actually been comparably quite bad compared to some other countries. So our third wave is kind of a third wave perched upon an ever-rising steady tide of infections here in the U.S. Other countries have actually managed to get their numbers down significantly enough that they were able to at some point blow the horn for an all-clear in a legitimate way. But some of those countries are now seeing their numbers bump back up after a few weeks or months of relative normalcy. And importantly, those waves are offset. So we're not seeing a steady surge in all places of the world or even all parts of a single country simultaneously. There are waves in one place and downslopes in others. But then a few months on, we'll see the reverse is true between those different places. The countries that have grit their collective teeth and attempted to keep their economies going, despite the rising infection and death rates, have consistently found that economies don't function very well when people are worried about dying or actively suffering from a pandemic-spread disease. Those which have utilized more draconian measures, on the other hand, seem to have done pretty well suffering an upfront and somewhat persistent overall hit to their economies and their general happiness levels, but after a few months typically being able to reopen with greater success and more economic participation than in places that opted for half measures, where some limits were put into place but not universally and not very well, which then resulted in an in-between status with more of the economy technically open but fewer people willing or able to participate in that economy. Fortunately, 
we are at the point where we have firm data, far firmer than at the beginning of all this at least, that says basically masks don't seem like they would do much. They're a very simple technology, but they're actually amazingly effective on scale. One of the most effective things that we individuals can actually do, as long as everyone or most people are wearing them when in public. The tragedy of the politicization of the mask issue in some locations is that it's such a simple, relatively inexpensive solution that could get most places back to something approximating normal life if everyone used them consistently and correctly. But because some people are fixated on political posturing and or a desire to not have anyone else tell them what to do, that near normalcy is still out of reach for many of the nations that didn't go for the draconian approach and instead decided to just hope things get better organically. We've also learned in recent months that while still a thing to be concerned about, it looks like COVID on surfaces is probably relatively less worrisome as a vector than aerosolized COVID, which means, again, masks are important, but so is circulation in indoor spaces, and the amount of time that we spend sharing the same air with other people. Better circulation that moves air around and keeps particulates from gathering and being inhaled in heavy doses can make more indoor spaces usable. And outdoor spaces seem to be much safer than we initially thought, with beaches and outdoor seating at cafes and restaurants considered to be kind of generally okay, as long as everyone involved keeps some distance between themselves. This revelation means that it may be possible to redesign some indoor spaces, or simply utilize them in a different way, in our efforts to get public spaces, including schools, back up and running. It also implies that there are potential solutions to sticky issues like mass transit and similar societal connective tissue problems that have been only imperfectly addressed thus far. If we can adjust the way these things are organized and the way air circulation works, there's a chance that we could get some of these structural necessities back up and running if we were to rethink their implementation. And that could happen relatively quickly if we focused on figuring out the best way to redesign and redeploy them. We've seen that pandemics can have knock-on effects in seemingly unrelated spaces. This goes back to that piece on potential prison reform stemming from the release of inmates to keep them and nearby communities safe from infection surges but also, arguably, to the recent and ongoing racial justice-focused protests in the wake of George Floyd being killed by a police officer, and the ongoing protests of the authoritarian ruler of Belarus, two sets of protests that were made possible, in part, by people being in lockdown and less able to go to work or school, many of those workplaces and schools having been shut down when the bulk of these protests were taking place but also potentially by the surge in awareness of what's happening in the news and in our communities caused by a shared experience, like a pandemic, and the accompanying shutdown of normal aspects of our lives, which we might otherwise lose ourselves in, rather than participating in marches and campaigns, no matter how important or justified those marches or campaigns might seem. We're learning that a great many, at times quite fundamental, industries are consistently operating at a razor's edge financially, and that even healthy-seeming economies are saturated with debt and just-on-time everything. 
we've seen that there are alternatives to many of our typical habits and behaviors, and that while some of these alternatives are actually better in some ways, a lot of them are lacking a certain something. In some cases, things that we can address specifically and measure quite accurately, while other things, the human elements of gatherings and school classrooms, for instance, are noticeably absent, but also difficult to quantify and thus difficult to replace or fix. Many of us have learned about pandemic fatigue as a result of what's happening this year. Basically, the normalization of a not-normal thing, and the easy shift from prudent behaviors into lazy versions of the same. The threat level not having changed, or even having gone up in some cases, but our hand-washing habits, mask-wearing habits, and new pandemic-related social habits devolving into variations that no longer protect us quite as much. In other words, we get tired of being alert and protective all day, every day. And after having to be disciplined for nearly a year, it's easy to dismiss the pandemic as something that we needn't worry about any longer. And or to justify the slouches in our habits because the pandemic perhaps hasn't been in the news quite so frequently of late, replaced by other more temporal and headline-grabbing stories instead. This fatigue is of particular concern right now because of the surges that are occurring in many places around the world and the surges that could occur as a consequence of a bunch of people letting their habits go lax all at once, but also because we have some vaccines on the horizon, the earliest of which might show up at the tail end of 2020, but many of which will probably begin the final stages of approval, and maybe, if we're lucky, the initial stages of deployment within the first few months of 2021. It may be that we'll have a bunch of different vaccines around that time, all of which provide different types of protection, and which should be used by different groups of people lacking proper information and the proper application of that information. It's possible that we could roll out vaccines and have people taking risks that they shouldn't be taking, that they are not protected from by the vaccine that they received, and the pandemic could then continue unabated with more unnecessary deaths and suffering and lifelong conditions that result from an infection that doesn't kill but nonetheless leaves people hobbled potentially for life, all because this whole thing dragged out too long and we all got bored or tired We've all been psychologically drained, understandably, and our attentions wavered, and we decided to try to read something other than the news from time to time. Again, all of these things very understandable, but nonetheless becoming a threat vector because of the dangers that we face in the context of this pandemic. Things are getting somewhat better in a broad sense, and the ratio of deaths to infections, at this point at least, are lower than earlier in the year. There are fewer deaths compared to the number of infections that we're seeing, which is a good sign that indicates our healthcare professionals have learned a lot of tricks and best practices along the way. So outcomes are getting better, even if they are still quite bad compared to other diseases that we might catch. We still don't want to get COVID-19 if we can avoid it, but the chances of dying from it if you do catch it are comparably lower than it was back in February and March of 2020. That said, there will continue to be deniers and conspiracy theorists, people who prioritize politics or money over human welfare, and we're entering flu season here in the Northern Hemisphere, so although there's a chance it will be less impactful than usual, because more people are washing their hands and not getting into contagious situations than typical, 
there's also a chance that the double whammy of dual infections could cause both diseases to be worse and more contagious. There's also the concern that more people spending the cold winter indoors could inflate infection numbers. While the cold weather and the winter diseases that we typically face this time of year could weaken our immune systems, which then leaves us more vulnerable to both catching and succumbing to COVID-19. As of the day I'm recording this, at the end of October 2020, more than 45 million people have been confirmed infected worldwide. Nearly 1.2 million people have died. About 32.3 million have recovered. And there are about 180 vaccines currently under development globally. This is a truly brutal marathon that we're all running. And most estimates I've seen from folks who are in positions to know about such things indicate we'll get some functional vaccines at the beginning of next year, with close to full worldwide deployment by late next year, if things go very well. Things will likely continue to get both better and worse, according to different metrics, and all any of us can really do at this point is the best that we are able, given our individual circumstances and the larger context in which those circumstances reside. If all goes as planned, this episode should come out on Election Day here in the United States. So just one more reminder to anybody who is in the U.S. and able to vote, please do remember to do so. It seems like a very small thing, but civic engagement is vital to maintaining the benefits of the democratic experiment that we're doing here in the United States. And taking the time to vote is one of the few individual things that all of us can consistently do to help maintain that system and help improve it over time. This is, of course, a very important election in multiple ways, but I would argue that voting, whenever you have the opportunity, is also one of the better ways to flex the rights and the small amount of power that each of us have to influence the government on a fairly consistent basis, taking into account local elections as well as federal elections. That said, the book that I'd like to recommend today is called Blood and Oil, Mohammed bin Salman's Ruthless Quest for Global Power, by Bradley Hope and Justin Sheck. This book was fairly illuminating in terms of the strange narrative that I have been keeping up with very superficially of Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS as he's typically called in the press these days, an incredibly powerful prince of Saudi Arabia who is considered to be the next-in-line ruler of the country, and who has been fairly dramatic and dynamic in terms of his application of power, in terms of breaking tradition, and utilizing the power and wealth that he has in non-traditional ways, and also in terms of his asymmetric approach to garnering more power and bringing other powerful people within the country under his thumb. He's also become fairly well-known after a publicity tour around the world that had people celebrating because it looked like he was going to grant people more freedoms within the country and be a little less belligerent nationalistically in the region. After that tour, he also showed some darker stripes when he had a journalist murdered and dismembered, when he imprisoned a bunch of his fellow princelings, and when he helped nudge the country deeper into conflict with their regional neighbors. 
I would be very surprised if this story was not turned into a movie or HBO TV show or something like that at some point. It's very dramatic. There's a lot of intrigue and very colorful characters, but it's also worth understanding because MBS and Saudi Arabia in general is a very important player on the world stage in terms of the investments that they make, in terms of the leverage that they have economically and militarily, and because they are kind of at a very central pivot point for a lot of world events because of their geography, but also because of the gravity of the power that they wield. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Blood and Oil by Bradley Hope and Justin Sheck. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.